It's been a little while since I've been up here, a little while, and today it feels different. Like there's part of me that definitely feels a little nervous. And, and I think, you know, I was even sharing that a little bit at prayer, like leading up to the service. I was kind of like, man, I, I'm kind of anxious and kind of um, worried. I don't know, like it was a little rough start to the day, all of these things. And, you know, I was praying even on the car ride up, you know, because we can pray at any time, any moment. I was praying, Lord, like um, help my wife who's taking care of these two kids, like while I'm up here, um, help us, like, like give us peace. But um, the more I thought about it, the more this feeling of a little unsettledness and a little anxiousness is the right thing to feel when we're looking at our text today. And we're going to see why. Because in our text today, we're looking at the holiness of God. And so that's just a very special and powerful thing to be looking at. And we're looking at the holiness of God through the context of Isaiah. You know, for those of you who don't know, we just started a new sermon series on Isaiah. And for those of you who don't know who Isaiah was, he was a prophet. And the context that he prophesied in, um, I just want to kind of break it down to you a little quickly. The context that Isaiah prophesied with was that way, way back when, right, God had a chosen people called the Israelites. And then at one point, God delivered the Israelites from slavery uh, in Egypt. And many of us are familiar with that part of the story. And then God, he, he walked with these people, he cared for these people, and he brought them to the edge of this promised land. And then God protected these people and he fought their battles for them, all so that his people could have a home and become a nation. And then God's hope for his people was that as a nation, they can go and in turn bless the nations. That they, these Israelite people, could help restore all people to right and good relationship with God. But what we see in the story as we read the Old Testament is we see that slowly but surely things begin to unravel. The kingdom of Israel becomes split in two. And the people of Israel, they stop relying on God. They stop honoring God. They begin to turn to idols. They become proud. They become self-absorbed. They become corrupt and they become unjust. And instead of being a light to the world, drawing the nations to God's good and righteous ways, the Israelites settled for darkness. And it's out of this context that Isaiah is called to prophesy. Right? He is called to tell Israel or the Israelite people in both kingdoms that God's judgment was coming and for them to repent. And so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at Isaiah's entire call to prophesy. His entire call to really, his ministry, to speak to these Israelite people. And, and I say we're going to look at Isaiah's entire call to prophecy because usually when we look at this passage, especially in the context of Sunday services, um, a big part of this passage is left out. But today we're going to look at the full uncensored version of Isaiah's call to prophecy. And we're just going to take a look at that right now. So here it is, Isaiah, it starts in chapter 6, verse 1. And as I read it, I mean, it might sound a little familiar to you. It goes like this, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. And this is Isaiah. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And usually if we're doing this in church, we kind of end here. But the passage continues and it reads like this. Isaiah says, uh, and God says, go and tell this people. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent away, sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as a tempest and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. So this is the word of the Lord. Wow, we're getting so much better at that. I love that. Yes, yes, church. Praise be to God. And so what's happening in our passage, right, the whole of our passage, Isaiah, um, he sees the holiness of God, then he's forgiven by the grace of God, and then he is sent out by God, and then even at first glance, the sending of God in this passage is a really tough passage, right, like speak this message, but no one's going to hear you for how long until everything is gone, till the very end, till everything is ravaged, right, it's a tough passage, well, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the holiness of God, then we're going to look at the grace of God, and then finally we're going to look at the sending of God. And by the end of it, hopefully, we'll be able to see how the holiness and the grace of God can help us wrestle with the sending of God in this passage. But first, we're going to start with the holiness of God, because that's what Isaiah sees first. He sees the holiness of God. He encounters a holy God. And you know, one of the words that is used to describe God the most in the Old Testament text is the word holy. It's used over 800 times in the Old Testament describing God. And in this passage, these creatures called seraphim, they're praising God. And what are they saying? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And basically what these creatures are saying is that God is incomparably holy, right? God is holy upon holy upon holy upon holy. And you know, the word holy, it's a very interesting word. It's a word that means to be separate. It's a word that means to be completely cut off. So to see a God as holy is to see the great distance that separates you from him, right? To see God as holy is to see how completely other God is from you, to see how, how completely different God is from you. It's to see that God's wisdom and his purity and his love and his greatness and his goodness are on a level completely different than your own. And so what happens in our passage? King Uzziah, he is one of Judah's greatest kings. And in the year that King Uzziah dies, the passage tells us 
that Isaiah receives the true king. And this true king, this Lord king, was so constant. He was so glorious. He was so righteous. He was so wise that he was holy. He was on a completely different level than any other king imaginable. And in that moment, in realizing God's holiness, Isaiah is undone. Isaiah cries out, woe to me. Why? Why does Isaiah do this? Why does he respond in this way? Well, I think one reason that Isaiah becomes undone is because suddenly he has a completely new reference point for what is good. He has a completely new reference point for goodness, and this reference point for goodness was categorically beyond him. Let me tell you what I mean. Let me give you an example of this. Okay, so growing up, many of you know by now, if you've listened to me long enough, uh, I love the sport of basketball. It's probably my favorite sport. And I always thought I was pretty good. And I was decently tall, 6'2", just pretty tall for an Asian, you know. <laughs> so pretty good, pretty tall, pretty lanky. You know, I had the skill set, right? And I love this sport so much that I would actually, whenever I wore pants, I would wear shorts underneath. Just in case a game would break out. It would be sweaty and stuffy, but I'd always have them. I'd always be on the ready. I'd always be prepared, right? And then one day, I played this guy. And this guy, oh my goodness, he was better than me in every single aspect of the game. He could pass better. He could shoot better. He had better court vision. I got completely destroyed by this guy. It was like a man among boys, this guy. And I found out later that this um, young man, he was going somewhere to the States on scholarship. So he was a very good player. But in that game, I realized how completely uh, this guy was on a completely different level than me. Right? There are, were levels to this, and he was on a completely different level than me. There was a huge gulf in our skill. Compared to him, even my best moves, my most polished moves were weak. They had holes. They were trash. Right? I would try and do a spinorama on me, and he would stop my spinorama. Right? I had, I had a completely new reference point for what it meant to be good at basketball. Completely new. It was completely different. And this humbled me. I felt ashamed. I felt destroyed. I felt like all my hard work, everything that I've done, it, it's nothing compared to this guy. Right? And Isaiah, think about this. Isaiah, he was not standing in front of a better baller. Right? <laughs> Isaiah was standing before a holy God, a God that was infinitely greater and better than him in every single conceivable way. I think in that moment, Isaiah knew how impossibly far he was from true goodness, from true integrity, from true purity, from true virtue, from true wisdom. And he saw God, and it unraveled him. You know, there are actually a lot of different thoughts as to why Isaiah specifically says in this passage that his lips are unclean. He makes known, Mo, my lips are unclean. Like, why not his heart? Why doesn't he say his mind is unclean? Why doesn't he say his hands is unclean? What is specifically the thing about his lips? And I like Tim Keller's observation of this when he says, you know, Isaiah's lips were probably one of Isaiah's best aspects. Isaiah's lips were probably one of Isaiah's best parts about him. After all, Isaiah was a prophet. He knew how to use his lips. 
And just by reading the book of Isaiah, you could tell that he was a great communicator, a special communicator. Isaiah's lips were special. They were golden. But when Isaiah was in the presence of God, suddenly he couldn't even join the chorus of voices praising God's holy name. He couldn't even join the chorus of voices. In the presence of a holy God, even Isaiah's immaculate lips were unclean. So much so that Isaiah cries out, I am a man of unclean lips who live amongst a people of unclean lips. In other words, in that moment, Isaiah knew he was a lot more like the corrupt people of Judah, a lot more like the indifferent people of Judah than he was truly good or truly just or truly pure like God was. In that moment, Isaiah knew that he was the issue, that he was the problem as much as everybody else was the issue and the problem. Church, God's holiness, it's just such a central part of God's character. And I believe that this part of God's character is just so important for us to acknowledge. Because when we don't, we can become prideful. And we can begin to think that we're better than others. We can think that other people are the problem, but we are right and we are good and we are just. But in the light of a holy God, we are all unclean. We are all sinners saved by grace. And so church, encountering a holy God will unravel you. Will it not? It will bring you to your knees because it will show you that even the best parts of yourself, the purest parts of yourself are tainted. That even our best is filled with mixed motivations and selfishness and apathy. That like it says later in the book of Isaiah, even our righteousness, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Right? And I think, I think that's why sometimes we're tempted over to skip God's holiness. Right? We, we kind of avoid God's holiness and we get right to God's grace. We get right to God's love. Like, Al, can you tell me again how much God loves me? Like, I'm kind of good with this holiness stuff, right? Like, sometimes it can be such a temptation to be like, okay, let's avoid the holiness thing, get right to the grace, right to the love. But let me say this. I think one of the reasons why we're not moved by God's grace is because we think so little of God's holiness. Right? So often we have such a small view of God's love for us, such a small view of God's grace for us, and because we actually think we're more lovable than we are. We actually think we're more deserving than we are. We actually think the gap that separates God and us is not that great. But let me put it bluntly, church. Unless you are undone by the holiness of God, you will never be melted or changed by the grace of God. Unless you are undone by the holiness of God, you will never be melted and changed by the grace of God. Like unless you are undone by the holiness of God to the point where you see your own sin, where you see that you're flawed, where you see your unworthiness, you will never be melted and changed by God's grace and his goodness to come to you, to save you, to rescue you, to lift you up. You know, in, and, and this, that's what we're going to talk about now, right? The grace of God, the goodness of God. You know, in the Bible, fire is often used to symbolize God's holiness. And I think, I mean, it's a, it's a really good kind of metaphor for God's holiness because fire is, is beautiful, right? It's revealing, it's powerful, but it's also dangerous. Fire is also unapproachable. Fire can destroy and deeply alter anything that gets too close to it. And look, 
if even our best parts, the best parts of ourselves are tainted, if even the best parts of ourselves are impure, and you suddenly find yourself in the presence of God's fiery holiness, what do you think will be left when the fire is through? Can I say, probably not much. And I, that's what should have happened to Isaiah. That's how far he was from being able to stand in God's holiness. He should have been taken up by the fire. And so in this passage, when Isaiah is standing in God's holy presence, and then the, suddenly there's this seraphim whose name, this, the name literally means burning one. That's what it literally translates into. This burning one takes this hot and burning coal from the altar, and, he appro and it approaches Isaiah. Isaiah's probably not thinking, oh, goody, I'm going to be saved. No, Isaiah's probably thinking, oh, no, I've gotten too close, and now I'm finished, and now I'm through. But instead, what does this coal do? Instead of disintegrating him, this coal purifies him. The seraph says that Isaiah's guilt is taken away, that his sin is atoned for, literally means covered, paid for. And so let's get the order of operations here, church. This is very important. Or, or what happens, right? The minute, the minute Isaiah acknowledges his guilt, the minute he confesses his sin, Isaiah is covered in the grace and the goodness of God. Right? The minute he acknowledges his sin, he is covered by the grace and goodness of God. You know, later in Isaiah, the prophet tells us that God wants to clothe us in his righteousness. And I think, though, before God can clothe us in righteousness, he has to bear us first. Before God can clothe you, he's going to bear you. Right? God will show you that every goodness that you're wearing, everything in your life that you think makes you deserving or think makes you worthy or think makes you good enough, it's full of holes. It's not enough to cover you. It's like rags. The presence of a holy God in your life will reveal all of your not enoughs. He'll expose you. But you know, God will do that in order to heal you. God will expose you in order to clothe you. In his mercy, God leads us down the path to repentance. He helps us see our failings. He helps us see all the places that we've fallen short so that we might acknowledge our sin, so that we might confess them, so that he might heal us, be gracious to us, clothe us, and minister to us. I think that's such a powerful thing. The minute that we confess, we are covered by the grace of God. And church, tell me, I, like, I know, confession is hard. Confessing is really hard because who likes to admit that they've done something wrong? Who likes to admit that they've fallen short? Every night, so I put my older daughter to bed while my wife handles the younger daughter. We kind of don't get breaks anymore. And so every night, Kyla and I, we do bedtime prayers. And for bedtime prayers, we pray three things. We pray one thing that we want to pray for, a person or a thing that we want to pray for, one thing that we're thankful for, and one thing that we're sorry for. Something to pray for, something to be thankful for, something to be sorry for. And by far, the hardest thing to pray is something that we're sorry for. And this is not just for her. This is for both of us, right? Kyla doesn't want to pray for something that she's sorry for. She doesn't want to do it. 
I can't think of anything that I did wrong in the course of the day. And so I struggle to do it, right? <laughs> so we're like sitting there and we're just like, okay, we got to do this. Something that we're sorry for. And honestly, lately, my inability to think of things that I'm sorry for has kind of scared me a bit. Because for me, it's such an indicator that I'm not walking as closely as I could with the holy God who reveals sin. If I'm sitting there at prayers with my daughter and I can't think of a single thing that I need to confess, it shows me that I'm not walking as closely as I can with the holy God who reveals sin. And so lately during prayer time, I have simply been praying, God, I am so sorry. I find it so hard to find things to be sorry for, <laughs> right? And, and, and I'm praying for God, like, help me to see more of you. Help me to see more of your holiness and your righteousness so I can see more of my sin. And I'm praying this because I have become convinced so often we miss out on the transforming power of God in our lives because we think we're good enough. We miss out on the healing power, the comforting, the grace of God in our lives because we think we're not that bad and we don't really have any problems. So often we miss out on being clothed and changed by a gracious God because we refuse to admit or acknowledge our need. Right? And so Isaiah, he sees God. Let's like follow where we're at now. Right? Isaiah sees God. Right? And then he's, he acknowledges his sin. He's forgiven by the grace of God. And then immediately Isaiah is sent out. And that's the last thing that we're going to talk about today. Isaiah is sent out, the sending of God. Right? And, I, and, and honestly, I think that this is such a common pattern in the Bible. And it's such a common pattern in the lives of believers. Right? You, you see God, you are saved by God, and then you're sent out by God. There's no, the, these three parts are like all connected. It's, you, can't just be, you can't just see and then save and not be sent. Right? You see, you say, then you're sent. And so the last thing we're talking about is the sending of God. And it's not an easy sending. In this passage, it's not an easy sending. Right? Remember, in our passage, God sends Isaiah to go speak to the people of Judah. And Isaiah, he's sent to tell this nation to acknowledge their sin, to turn back to God. But then God tells Isaiah that their, this message will harden the hearts of the people. They will hear it, and they will not listen. They will see it, and they will not perceive it. And you know, as I was working through this passage, you know what surprised me the most when I was working through this passage? What surprised me the most was that these very difficult verses are the most quoted verses of Isaiah in the New Testament. Those verses are the most quoted verses of Isaiah in the New Testament. And, and they're often used to describe how people would reject Jesus and his message of salvation. Right? They hear him, but they don't listen. They see him, but they don't perceive him. And so all of these verses really touch upon a reality of the gospel message that we see today. Because look, if you go into the city, go into the city of Richmond, go into the city of Vancouver, go into, pick a city, go into the city, and you give somebody an unfiltered gospel message, right? If you just go there and you call people to repent of their sin, tell them they're sinners, you tell them to repent of their sin, turn to Christ and receive his grace, you will find that many people will not hear you. Many people will not listen. Not because the gospel is hard to understand, but because it has the power to harden a heart. Right? It, can, it can sound offensive. It can sound antiquated. It can sound arrogant. But the Christian, like Isaiah, is called to persevere. 
took place of you. He continued to share this message all the way until the very end. And so when I read this passage, I think the biggest question, the most relevant question that I had when I was looking at this text was how? How did Isaiah persevere? How did he remain faithful to his sending? How did he overcome the ridicule and the scorn of others? How did he keep his faith? How did he deal with all of his questions and all, all of his doubts? Like, God, why are you doing this? Is this just? Is this righteous? How did he deal with those questions? It couldn't have been easy. Isaiah was prophesying for over 60 years. So how did he keep on going and keep sharing this message? And you know, the answer I keep on coming back to is that Isaiah was able to persevere and Isaiah was able to keep speaking because he had seen and he had encountered a holy God. He had seen and encountered a holy God. So he kept on going, right? Because first of all, in the light of a holy God, you will become completely silent, right? Because in the light of a holy God who is infinitely wise, who are you to question him? In the light of a holy God who is infinitely just, who are you to challenge him? In the light of a holy God who is infinitely great, who are you to demand anything of him? So the light of a holy God will silence your complaints. It will absolutely silence your grievances. But the light of a holy God will also give you a quiet peace. It will give you a quiet confidence because you know that you will be able to trust God with your details. You know that he will be able to see more than you, he is wiser than you, he is more just than you, and he is more compassionate than you. You will know that if God has called you to something, he has a good reason for it, even if you can't see that reason for yourself in that moment. And church, I think Isaiah must have rested in that. And this God where he sees this goodness, he sees this wisdom that is greater than his own. And, and it allowed him to trust and follow God, even when things got hard. And surely that must have strengthened his resolve. It must have helped him hold fast because, look, if the king of the universe sees value in you, if the king of the universe redeems you and sends you, you're going to care a lot less about what other people say, aren't you? If the king of the universe does this, you're going to care a lot less about whether or not everybody likes you or not. And that's the other thing the holiness of God will do that it will give you a hope to keep on going. It will shine a light on hope. It will show you no matter how broken or destroyed or how far gone a thing is, it is not beyond God's mighty hand to redeem. And Isaiah, it points and hints at this kind of hope throughout the book. And we also hear it, see it here in our very passage because in the very end of our passage, we see that um, even though the nation of Judah will be chopped down like a forest, a holy seed would remain. That God's plan to bless the nations, that God's plan to restore all things to himself was still very much alive. And you know, church, hundreds of years later, we are blessed to know how God did it, how God executed his plan. He did it by coming into the world as a person of Christ. And by taking our place on the cross and allowing himself to be chopped down for our sins. You know, in our passage that we looked at today, when, a, when this coal touches Isaiah's lips, we are seeing that his sin is paid for. But on the cross, we learn ultimately that it was Jesus who paid the cost for our sins. And he paid it with his own life. 
That's the thing, church. I hope we look at God. I hope we look at the holiness of God. And I hope because, because when we look at the holiness of God for long enough, not only will we see a holy God who is greater than us, who is wiser than us, who is more righteous than us, who is more pure than us, but we will also see a holy God who loves more than we could ever imagine, who serves us more than we would ever serve him, who gives more than we could ever give. Church, look at the Lord. See his holiness. The holiness of God, it will strengthen your bones, and at the same time, it will melt your heart. Oh, that we might behold and be moved by this holy God so that we might see our failings, receive his grace, and respond to his call. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Lord and Gracious Father, we just thank you that you are not, you are not us. You are God. That even though you are God, you came down to be just one of us so that you might take the cost, so that you might atone for all of the not good enoughs and all of the missed it by that much and all of the brokenness that we carry with ourselves. We thank you that we have someone that is greater than us that we can turn to so that we don't have to constantly try and prove ourselves. We don't constantly have to wrestle and try and show our worth. We don't have to constantly try and find our value in the things that we do or the things that we accomplish because all of that is in you. You have atoned for us, that our worth is in you, this God that says, I love you so much, I would die for you. You are so valuable to me that I would come down to be with you, that you have so much worth for me that I will not leave you nor forsake you. Even when you turn from me, even when you go far, I will still find a way to redeem and rescue. Lord, I just pray that we can see that part of your holiness, that we can stare at you long enough where we know that you are so not like us and that we can rest in that, we can revel in that, we can rejoice in that, even when we know that we are not you, that we are not as good as you, that we are not as perfect as you. So thank you, Lord, for everything that you are. All of these things we pray in your son's most holy name. Amen.